Cornered like a rat, Vladimir Putin is more dangerous now than ever. We want his regime to be unstable, fragile and collapsing, but 14 months of war have shown it to be remarkably resilient. We wanted the Russian people to rise up against tyranny, but more than a million fled the country instead. Analysts, politicians and the media have been wrong about so much when it comes to Russia. What are we still getting wrong? Welcome to Silicon Curtain. All our content is also now available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So please do like and subscribe to help new people find our fantastic speakers. And if you enjoy the content, please do consider becoming a patron of the channel. Mark Galliotti is an author and academic by training as an historian, but in practice an interdisciplinary scholar with interests encompassing politics, criminology, security studies, international relations and anthropology. He is a specialist in transnational and organized crime, security affairs, Russian politics, Russian history, intelligence and security. Mark has a PhD in government from LSE and has worked as a senior lecturer and head of department of history at Keele University. He is a principal director at Mayak Intelligence and is an honorary professor SSEES at UCL. He is Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and has been Professor of Global Affairs at New York University from 2009 to 16. His books, articles and media appearances are too numerous to mention, but I will be providing links in the video description to some of his more recent publications, which I strongly advise people to check out. Um, Mark, I'm delighted to welcome you back to the channel for the second time. Well, great to be here. Now, we're going to discuss, I think, a very interesting topic, which was prompted uh, by one of my recent uh, guests on the channel, Scott Lucas, and that is late stage Putinism. I mean, let's start there, because as the introduction says, so much of Putin's regime has been misunderstood. There's been so much wishful thinking on the part of politicians and the media. And over the years, he does seem to have caught out the West through his bold and sometimes unpredictable behaviours. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, it's not just the West that's been caught out. I mean, if one thinks back to 1999, when he was first tapped to become Boris Yeltsin's successor, a lot of the St. Petersburg liberal set were actually delighted, because although Putin wasn't quite one of them, Nonetheless, he thought that uh, they thought that he basically represented a certain strand of opinion. I think this has always been one of Putin's relatively few strengths is that the gray man, and he is a very, very gray man, becomes something of a kind of Rorschach inkblot, if I can sort of mix my metaphors, on whom everyone overlays what they want to see. So you know, the liberals thought he was uh, you know, a breath of fresh air. Um, the West thought he was quite a phrase, someone we could do business with. The nationalists thought he was going to be a tough hammer of, of Russia's enemies. And you know, every country or every leader who had any aspirations to becoming a sort of a great geopolitical statesman, and of course I'm not thinking just about Emmanuel Macron, but certainly Emmanuel Macron, thinks that somehow Putin is the person who only he or she can actually talk to and get them to change their opinions. So, you know, we, we've all been constructing our own personal Putins in our heads for a long, long time. And Bush and Blair famously fell into that same trap, didn't they? I know Blair 
snapped out of it relatively quickly, but uh, people have projected their their hopes, desires, uh, whether it be for a better Russia or the destruction of Russia. I mean, they've all projected their their mm. hopes and desires onto this figure. And you know, there is there is a literary metaphor for this, isn't it? Podporuchikije from uh, from sort of Russian literature, this sort of grey invisible figure, and that seems to be his core skill. Um, and it's not surprising, perhaps, as a KGB-trained agent, um, he's able to uh, understand people's sort of desires and intent and make them believe these on their side, whereas, in fact, he's almost certainly a bit of a moral vacuum. Oh, a moral vacuum, absolutely. I, I mean, again, I, I think, in a way, we shouldn't necessarily overplay the KGB side of things, because it's worth noting he was a very mediocre KGB agent you know he was not one of the high flyers he was no way a bond figure we've actually seen some of his assessments basically he was a solid b he was fine but but nothing more again i think that but you know that speaks to again one of the the interesting aspects of putin is the way that the mythology is created that precisely uh, a very mediocre and not that long period in the KGB has somehow become used to create this sense that he is a sort of, a, I don't know, some kind of combination of Carla from you know, John le Carre's works through to the master manipulator. Um, I think, again, yes, he clearly had and has this one skill and arguably it's only his only real skill. Is precisely knowing how to manipulate people, know how to be the right person. Through the 1990s, after all, his career was essentially as being everyone's favourite bag carrier. The loyal deputy who basically would have his principal back, who would make sure that whatever needed to get done got done, that the evidence was, was burnt and thrown away, that, you know, basically... You can you can embezzle to your heart's content, whatever, and don't worry, Vladimir Vladimirovich has got everything in hand. And this is why, when he was essentially chosen, it was by a sort of a cabal of people around the increasingly ailing and erratic Yeltsin, who thought that they found the person who would protect them, but also essentially be their cat's paw. And that was their big mistake, because as soon as he's behind the big desk, he makes it clear that actually, no, he's in charge now. But right up to that point, again, everyone thinks they can use Putin. A little bit like the guy in Reservoir Dogs, I think, that's brought in to clear up the bodies. Um, and you say the KGB uh, in terms of, uh, you know, he's he's not particularly strategic, but it appears he was programmed to do one thing in the KGB, and that was spy on liberal opposition, uh, infiltrate, take down threatened, coerced, beat up, etc. And if we take that sort of programming as a as a low-level KGB thug um intended to to squash um you know any sort of you know Samsdat or dissident kind of activity, he seems to have followed through on that programming rather well. And and certainly it's accelerating in the last few years. Um, and I want to dig into some of these characteristics of what late stage Putinism means. And this degradation of civil society uh, is is a key part of where it's going, isn't it? Yes. I mean, maybe I should explain what I think of as, as you know, quite why what makes it late stage Putinism, Putinism rather than just simply next stage Putinism. I mean, I think this is last stage Putinism, to be perfectly honest. It's precisely the 
the real creative capacities and potentials of Putinism have been thoroughly exhausted. Because, you know, if we're honest, look, like all regimes, like all leaders, Putin has evolved over time, evolved, devolved, whatever, changed anyway. Um, and the Putin we see now is certainly not the Putin that we saw in 2000 or 2008. We have to recognize that his first two terms were actually strikingly successful to a large extent for reasons that were not down to him. It's because the economy was going really well. He had enough money to throw at all kinds of different issues. But at the same time, the first two terms of Putinism, it wasn't just for show. I mean, he did genuinely want to have popular legitimacy. Yes, top level politics was totally manipulated and a stage managed uh, theatrical charade. But there was actually a lot of scope precisely for civil society at a lower level. You know, as long as you didn't look as if you were directly criticizing or challenging the Kremlin, as long as you said, no, 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 it's not about that. It's just about this local issue, this specific point. You actually had a lot of room for maneuver. And in some ways, this was much more impressive than in the 1990s. In the 1990s, people could act, but that's because the state was so incapable of doing anything about it. In the 2000s, the state could do something about it, but actually was willing to allow people to have this space. Now, I'm not saying this was because of Putin being a, a nice chap and, and a Democrat at heart. It's that precisely he, as far as he's concerned, he didn't care about that. He saw it as a useful safety valve, uh, a chance for people to, to, to let off steam about particular sort of issues that really matter to their day-to-day -day lives. And he, yes, he wanted people, he wanted people to be happy. Bless him. I mean, in, in the sense of he wanted to buy them off with material advantage and he wanted to buy them off with that feeling that they had some kind of power. So long as everyone realized that the real power, the real financial opportunities were Putin's and those of Putin's mates and cronies. Now, what's happened, though, is that to a large degree, this was this worked because of huge amounts of money. So that every, everyone could live well, you know, the, the embezzlers could embezzle, the military could be built up, and ordinary Russians could live well. But also to a degree, a kind of relief that the, the anarchic 1990s, the period of crisis, the period in which Russia seemed to be heading towards dissolution, or at least you know, irrelevance, they were over. Now Russia was stable, you didn't have the same kind of crime rates, Russia was seen to be a, a, you know, a serious player in world politics. So there, there, was, there was growth gratitude and practical interest. But the point is, you can't keep running on the I'm not Boris Yeltsin um, sort of element. And particularly when Putin returned to power after his uh, hiatus in order to satisfy on the surface term limits. So he had two presidential terms and then he was prime minister with a sock puppet president. I mean, the interesting thing was at that point, that's when we saw the confluence of these two issues that basically the money was beginning to get tighter. And frankly, because the embezzlers of the elite were not going to give up their perks, the burden had to fall on ordinary Russians. But also Russians were thinking, well, yeah, OK, that's fine. It was great. You know, it's not the 1990s. But what's the future going to offer us? What's your vision and Putin didn't have one for ordinary Russians. It was about Russia being great and strong in the world. Well, most people don't really care. They want to know that their kids are going to have a better life than them. So you had protests. And by this point, Putin had become increasingly paranoid. And I'm sorry, this is turning into a potted history, but I think mm, no, it's a trajectory um, that 
as far as he's concerned, the protests couldn't possibly be natural and organic expressions of the, the angers and the resentments of these, above all, essentially metropolitan population, who felt that, in fact, rigged elections were, were too blatantly rigged, that rule of their country was not just simply some trinket that could be passed from one figure in the elite to the other. No, 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 it couldn't possibly be natural and organic. It had to be a plot by the CIA and, of course, MI6. I mean, we, we still feature very strongly in the cosmology of threats um, around Putin. Um, and so anyway, from that point, I think he increasingly felt two things. One is that the West was coming to get him and that any expression of opposition was actually something that was created and generated and mobilized by the West. But also that in some ways the Russians were letting him down. They were not living up to him, his vision, his historic destiny, and that therefore they deserve to have much less of a say. And I think, you know, we we have seen this, this kind of develop and so forth. But I think particularly, you know, there, there are points like the Balotnaya protests of 2011-2012, his response to Crimean revolution of dignity in 2014, you know, which, which has shown this degree of sort of isolation from his own population, isolation from reality. And I really think that, frankly, um, in hindsight, the annexation of Crimea I think was probably a, a, a crucial point. Um, in the short term, it gave him this sort of sugar hit of popularity with ordinary Russians because they genuinely thought Crimea was rightfully theirs. But it was a point when it was absolutely the Tsar making the decisions on behalf of ordinary Russians. And fine, they, they liked this. They, they didn't like the successive decisions. But the point is their job was simply to applaud. And I don't think there's, you know, from this point onwards, Putin didn't basically stop caring about domestic issues. He cared about his own historic legacy and he cares about really Russia's place in the world as a result of that. But you might say the idea that the, that the president is there for Russia has been flipped round, and it's now that Russia is there for the president. I like this idea of paranoia as well. I say I don't like it uh, intrinsically. It's horrific. But I would suspect that he's always been paranoid, but up until a certain point, you had information transfer uh, through the system. So he's getting information about different organizations, their activities, what he controls, what he's infiltrated. Do they have a, you know, are, do they pose a real threat or not? So in the first part of his regime, you've got a fine tuning of his paranoia. Um, would you characterize perhaps the what's happened recently is that information flow has ceased. Therefore, he has far less information about what's actually going on, who's who, what their intent is. So the paranoia that's always present has now turned from being a fine tuned to an extremely crudely tuned mechanism. Yes. And in some ways, it, it will be interesting when dust has settled and we get access in due course to memoirs, files, whatever is to discover how far this was in some ways the first COVID war. Because we'd seen before this point uh, a, a steady narrowing of Putin's circle. And look, pretty much all authoritarian leaders over time become caricatures of themselves. They fall into old habits, they get older, they get less willing to accept criticism and alternative perspective. I remember back in 2015, talking to a recently retired Russian spy who had said, look, we've learned you don't bring bad news to the Tsar's table. In other words, 
Although in theory, spies job is to provide the so-called best truth. In practice, they realize that actually it's very difficult to challenge his assumptions and his prejudices and you had to go with it because you know the intelligence agencies are operating in a very competitive, even cannibalistic environment. So they all have to try and show that they are more loyal they're more in tune with the boss's perspective. So this, this dates back to 2015. And we, we know from it before, I mean, the, 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 the revolution of dignity. Again, uh, an organic rising against a corrupt and unresponsive government in, in Ukraine, but nonetheless was presented to Putin as clear proof of a CIA plot to basically steal Ukraine from, from Russia. Um, but nonetheless, it absolutely accelerated during COVID. Um, we don't know why. I, I still suspect that we'll find out in due course that somehow Putin is immunocompromised and therefore could not be vaccinated. It's worth noting that although we were told he was vaccinated, for someone who often so often has, um, you know, bare shirted uh, sort of press pics, we never got to see him being vaccinated or anything like that. Um, so it may well be that he couldn't. And certainly it meant that basically the people who actually had FaceTime with him face to face, and although, yes, he has video conferences, there is a physicality to power and influence actually being there. You know, the people who were, there were a handful of his friends and cronies, the same generation, the same mindset, and a relative handful of officials. Interestingly, for example, Prime Minister Mishustin, who is a technocrat, I wouldn't describe him as an ultranationalist or anything like that. He's just basically a sort of a self-interested managerial technocrat. He had very little direct contact with Putin during COVID because you have to isolate for at least two weeks under armed guard in order to get to see the boss. And he couldn't, you know, he was actually running the country. Whereas uh, Security Council Secretary Patrushev, who for me is a very, very baleful presence, uh, if anything, the person who's even more hawkish than Putin and definitely pushes him in that direction. I mean, I, I called him the most dangerous man in Russia. Well, Patrushev literally had a monthly cycle whereby he would isolate for two weeks so that he could actually get FaceTime with the boss and then once again go, go, go into isolation. He had that luxury. And then precisely, so he's the one who's also dripping his poison into Putin's ear. So and I think he's more ideological. He absolutely got worse. He's more ideological. He's not necessarily a pragmatist. He's the one that has some really sort of, you know, bizarre... Uh, call it sort of turbo patriot kind of uh, ideas. Yeah, and this is it. And, and interestingly, we, we've seen him, you know, really in the last two years, um, become much more visible. I mean, he's he's not a politician. Um, you know, he is basically, in some ways, he's now de facto the national security advisor for Putin um, and the, the manager. He's kind of combines the, that role with the director of national intelligence and whatever else. Um, but now we, we see him giving these new, uh, interviews, particularly to newspapers, which are thoroughly bizarre tracts that, as I said, even make Putin's statements look like carefully measured and mod moderately dovish positions. You know, it's absolutely that, the, you know, he, he, for example, continues to push this line that the West, above all, and that means the United States, has an active policy of wanting to dismantle the Russian Federation without actually saying that this whole thing goes back to the claims that were made by a psychic who claimed to have read into Madeleine Albright, the former American Secretary of State's dreams, and from that divined this plan. I mean, you know, can one imagine someone in the West saying, well, I know what Putin wants, 
because my cat told me or something. Um, you know, but nonetheless, this is the person who is ultimately the most important person briefing Putin about the outside world. This is the person who gets to paint a picture of the world to Putin. Um, and he believes these deeply disquieting, paranoid, xenophobic things. And there's terrible echoes in history, aren't they? The paranoia of the rulers of the Red Fortress. I mean, it's it's extraordinarily sort of Shakespearean, medieval, this idea of the, the fish rotting from the head. But in a vertical system, uh, unfortunately, the guy at the top has a undue influence over everything that happens within that society. Well, you say medieval, because that's, again, that's absolutely the situation. You know, we have a court in which actually the courtiers are all trying to win the favour and the ear of the monarch. And uh, you know, I, I've called this system an autocracy, because in some ways, actually, your job isn't determined by what's on your business card or your office door. It's by what the boss wants you to do today, which may well be totally different from tomorrow. I mean, we see this with the classic example of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the sort of financial backer and manager of the Wagner mercenary group. I mean, in the past, he's done everything from run troll farms to hack the American elections to um, basically sending his Wagner mercenaries around Africa looking for, for good financial deals more than anything else. But this is it. It's it's whatever, whatever you need doing. Um, so in this situation, absolutely, policy is, is driven by two things. One is the monarch. But look, Putin is not on the whole uh, detailed oriented figure. As you've mentioned, he's not strategic. So actually, there's also a huge amount of room for political entrepreneurs, people who come up with ideas. You know, Putin tends to operate on the basis of, you know, he, he, he has a rough idea of what he wants. And in good Dragon's Den style, he then lets these political entrepreneurs pitch to him and they'll have different ideas. And often, unfortunately, these days, it's the more exciting, dramatic idea which, which gets his attention. And, you know, he, he lets them run with it. So very much it's, it's, it is like a medieval court in that it's all about who can actually inspire the boss today. And that tends to drive it rather than some careful, rational, modern, bureaucratic, institutionalized structure. And we also know that the Russian system of governance, uh, you know, based on Chinovniki and, and, and the sort of levels of hierarchy, extremely sluggish, uh, nepotistic, beset with corruption, but also highly unresponsive. You know, under communism, you got the guys at the top, whether it be Stalin or somebody else, they want to thrash this machine into achieving a particular result. They don't know quite how to do it. They don't have the mechanics of it, but they want to sort of beat this system to achieve a certain result. And generation after generation, there seems to be this, this extraordinary sort of almost apathy built into the whole architecture of the system. That sort of somehow explains why Putin would, would short circuit that to go for, um, I mean, let's call them entrepreneurs. I mean, uh, that, 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 that's an insult probably to entrepreneurship as we know it in the West. But these are people, as you say, who can cut through bureaucracy and, and get stuff done and not averse to you know bumping a few people off in the process. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this has always been the implicit checks and balances of successive Russian systems. It's not about the law. It's not about procedure and so forth. It's about the fact that just simply eh, stuff doesn't happen or corruption undermines the, the will of the center. And this also, I think, explains 
why Putin, like so many leaders who become frustrated at their inability to change their own country, because actually that's very, very hard, who in, and therefore instead look to foreign policy, because that's a place in which you can do the dramatic, the heroic, where actually the, you know, the, the boss actually has executive power. You can declare war, you can make a peace treaty, you can send, send your troops in, and nothing can really stop you. Now, okay, the troops may well end up being rubbish, because corruption has ensured that they haven't got the, the radios and the all-weather tires and everything else that they need, and your generals might not be as effective as you'd hoped. But the point is, on a top level, you can actually do things there. And no one, no one can stop you from declaring war, in effect. But on the other hand, you can declare that there will be a diversification of the economy as much as you want. But that's slow, painful, and I think also from Putin's point of view, tedious. Because this is the thing. What are the current real challenges? You know, put aside that minor detail of, of a, a major war. What are the real challenges facing Russia for the future? It's infrastructure. It's diversification of the economy away from hydrocarbons. It's addressing the pensions shortfall. It's all these kind of you know, very managerial and from Putin's point of view, tedious, but most importantly of all, difficult tasks. They're not ones that you can just simply solve with, with, with a decree. And I think Putin has basically both out of boredom and, and a sense of hopelessness, backed away from that. He is not doing his job, and he hasn't been even, even before February of last year. He was not actually doing his job domestically. Um, he would he had sort of abdicated responsibility for that. Um, and now he's just lost in his sort of you know, dreams of being one of the great Russian state-building heroes, you know, bringing Ukraine back into the fold of, 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 of the motherland. And since that hasn't worked out, he's now stuck with that. And again, he's focusing on how to deal with this challenge, never mind everything else that has to be done. And the other problem with that, isn't it, is that to tackle the tough problems, the move away from hydrocarbons, et cetera, et cetera, these require systemic changes. Systemic changes require a change to the vertical system, require uh, changing who appears in his court, or maybe even disbanding the court itself and ceding power to to other bodies within the country, to an extent to survive, he's built a system which is incapable of systemic change. Therefore, is incapable of tackling these deep rooted problems. Exactly. I mean, again, this comes back to this whole issue of a system that has lost its capacity to reform and and innovate. The irony is there is actually some phenomenal human capital within the Russian government system. But it's all in, I have a tendency to think of it almost as if it's sort of a, an archetypal English aristocratic country home. You know, there, there is the Lord of the Manor and his friends who are partying away. And then there is the, the huge force of maids in waiting and butlers and such like. And they're the below stairs staff with Prime Minister Mishustin as the head butler. He's not one of Putin's friends. Um, his job is to keep the house running so that the aristocrats can continue partying. And I think if one looks at these people, I mean, some of them have, shall I say, more, more, more of a moral compass than others. But nonetheless, you know, if one looks at Prime Minister Mishustin, Moscow Mayor Sabyanin, Central Bank Chair Nabulina, you know, one can go on and on, but the point is, these are often phenomenally effective. And this is when one of our problems, I mean, 
one of the one of the many reasons why sanctions haven't been anywhere near as effective as we'd hoped is precisely because the technocrats very, very capably have responded to it. It's still having an effect and it will continue to do so, but they've done as good a job as anyone could to deal with it. But the point is they have to do this despite, not thanks to Putin. Um, you know, often it's about almost how they can subvert the system to actually get along with things while still protesting their loyalty and saying, yes, yes, we're all behind the Z and, and, and everything else. So, and, so I, I agree. Putin has not got, uh, arguably never have, but certainly now, has not got the stomach for a fight with his own upper elite, which is what any kind of major reform would involve. Because the key point is, this is, this is an engine for embezzlement. Um, and any major reform would have to address that. You cannot reform this system and continue um, the sort of, you know, the, the, the big corporate structures like Gazprom and Rosneft, respectively, Lukoil, um, you know, allow them their, their, their continued sort of role and feather bedding and at the same time move away from them. You know, all, all, all of these things would need to be addressed. I mean, in a way, I'm tempted to say what Russia needs is a revolution. Um, but Putin is definitely not the one to lead any revolutions. And, and that was going to be one of my later questions was about the organic uh, nature that, that actually is required of revolutions. Maybe we'll come to that one in a minute, because I did want to quiz you about the Russian opposition who, um, you know, at the moment they're in the background. But I think there are real problems with with the Russian opposition, um, you know, structural problems with how they're, they're acting and so on. Um, but let's quickly tackle the economic one, because another feature of late stage Putinism, as you say, is that there was a period where liberal economics, rational economics, really produced spectacular results in Russia, despite all of the corruption, despite the feather bedding, despite the, the huge graft on government contracts and so on. And it's reputed that up to 50% of, say, the funds uh, used to, to create the Olympics were kind of siphoned off. And then the infrastructure that was left is now kind of crumbling and there's no, uh, uh, you know, redundancy, as it were, built into that. Despite all of that, the Russian economy grew. Russian life expectancy bounced back from disastrous levels to attain levels that it hadn't seen since the height of the, you know, the Soviet period and the achievements of, of that. Um, so there are certain extraordinary benefits. But in that period up to 2012, Putin stayed out of the economy, didn't he? You know, he let the experts get on with it, uh, was buoyed up by, by oil revenues. They rationalized the tax system. And then all the kind of corruption that was definitely going on, the hostile takeovers, that wasn't at a scale where it killed the economy. I mean, Russia perhaps could have grown significantly faster without that corruption. Nonetheless, it's not a complete kind of disaster. But what we see now is the transformation in late stage Putinism into a war economy. Um, so there will be people in society who are being satisfied, who are getting rich. But is that a sustainable machine? I mean, the honest answer is no. It is sustainable enough. I mean, you know, we're not going to see, in my opinion, the Russian economy crumble or, or even seriously stutter this year and into next year. Um, the scarring that takes place is, is slower and deeper. I mean, you know, it's also the fact that even if the war ends tomorrow, and even if sanctions were lifted, which is exceedingly unlikely, I mean, I think really some form of sanctions are now going to remain regardless of the war, so long as Putin is in the Kremlin. But even if one could take away all of these constraints, it's not as though everyone would be flocking back into the Russian market 
having seen how things can, can so quickly change, the lack of uh, security that they have and such like. So, you know, we, we're talking about a process which is going to take years, maybe even decades to, 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 to recover when that recovery point finally comes. So, yes, it, it, it's, it's a slow grinding effect. But again, the, the issue is this. Um, even without the war and the associated economic sanctions, you know, it was clear that the Russian economy was facing serious systemic challenges. And there was already a debate taking place. Like most Russian debates, a quiet one behind the scenes, but between the sort of technocrats, the securocrats and the kleptocrats, shall we say. You know, the technocrats were saying we need to reform. The securocrats not really caring about reform as such, so long as the, the state power was maintained which is difficult to have with reform, because in a way that state power also depends on your capacity to basically decide who's a winner and who's losers. And the kleptocrats are just going to steal as much as they can. Now, with the, 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 the war economy, what we're seeing is in some ways, again, we're still seeing this challenge. You know, the people like Patrushev, who basically want to recreate the Soviet system in the name of the war effort. And it's not because they're they're they're. Um, nostalgic for, for the Soviet era so much, but basically they just want to see everything that is needful under the control of the state directly. And the technocrats who are still saying that is that will be disastrous. And the kleptocrats, who again, and this is their turn not to care, they just want to see how, how they're going to make money. And so some kleptocrats would lose by the militarization in the economy and some would gain. So in a way they, they'll, they'll make their alliances um, on that basis. But the key thing is this, there is almost no discussion of economic rationality in this debate at the, at the higher levels, because the technocrats know that that does not float Putin's boat or float Putin's warship. Um, you know, they, they 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 have to play it in other terms about well, you know, more money will be available, more responsive, etc. Et um, you know, again, it, it's all about what can possibly motivate Putin today. And in this context, therefore, what we're going to what we're going to get is an increasingly unbalanced economy. We're already seeing that. I mean, the overall GDP figures for Russia are actually surprisingly good. I mean, compared with what we'd expect. However, if you disaggregate the military from the civilian economy, I mean, it's very clear that the military economy is going great guns. The arms factories are trying to move on to 24 hour production, four shift system, etc. Whereas the civilian economy is, is in real trouble. And even the elements that are still running, to a large extent, it's because of subsidies. And the classic example is the car industry. I mean, you know, you've, you've now got the, the big car plants at Togliati producing new larders. Larders, special edition. Well, what's so special about them? No airbags, no GPS, nothing that depends on the spare parts that they can't get from the West anymore. So in other words, special in the sense of it's now 1990s vintage cars. Do Russians really want this when they can actually just buy Chinese cars? The answer is probably not. We'll wait and see, but I, I, I suspect not. But the point is the state cannot afford to let these car plants on which the whole economy of the city of Togliati depends stop operating. So in practice, the state is building cars that no one wants. And you can do that for a while. But this is exactly, I mean, this is also the great besetting sin of the Soviet economy, that increasingly you're using money that you can't afford to produce things that no one wants. And you can't do that forever. 
I'm assuming this car is not called the uh, the special operation edition because many of them have been given to uh, the families who've who've, who've lost. Uh, yeah, quite. I was going to say loved ones, but looking at some of the viral videos, <laughs> that's not always the case. Um, I mean, it's deeply horrific what's happening, and let's 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 turn to that idea of systemic change because with so many problems it seems that either we're faced with the collapse of Russia or it's going to have to dig itself out of this hole. Um, the best thing that Ukraine could have in the future is a Russia that is not a psychotic, unstable basket case, but actually is a, a rational, um, run by rational uh, economics. Um, but what would need to happen? And this is where I think we come on to the opposition and the real challenge, because even you know i'm not questioning the label of liberal because i think that's a bit of a can of worms and as, as some you know um sociologists have pointed out you can have liberal values which sit happily alongside you know certain um i would call it sort of mythologies or imperial ideas so it's quite possible for the russian liberal opposition to also hanker after a big russia uh, a sort of more imperial kind of entity the other challenge, I think, with the with the liberal opposition is they talk about, you know, the beautiful Russia of the future. They talk about being a normal country, but without talking about the mechanism, how you get from this point to that point, how you rebuild a country's institutions, not from the top down, but from the ground up. And can you do any of that stuff without some kind of groundswell of, uh, you know, organic development of civil society like we saw in Ukraine, but which seems to be curiously absent in, in Russia. I mean, I think I question that. I think actually civil society is more present in Russia than, than we might think. And in some ways it helps explain the very pitch of authoritarian repression that we're seeing at the moment. I mean, the key thing is, I mean, this is why Alexei Navalny was so dangerous to Putin, that so much so that he needed to be poisoned and then due course basically imprisoned for as long as they need, because they will just simply add to his sentence as and when necessary, is precisely he seemed to be a figure who was able to actually bridge previous divides between what would often been a very, very sort of fractious and fragmented opposition movement. You know, he seemed to be bringing together a coalition of the fed up, who for a whole variety of different reasons were unhappy with the status quo, and felt precisely that there was the need for some systemic change. And this is why his movement actually was able to build itself as a national movement rather than just simply a sort of Moscow inside the Beltway um, type one. And that's why he and his movement had to go. And, you know, if, if we look at subsequent leaders who have been sort of more recently arrested, people like Vladimir Karim Murza or Ilya Yashin, um, you know, they, they, they haven't had the same kind of traction on the Russian population, but still for different reasons, they, they had to be put away. So essentially there is no scope for any kind of, at the moment, any kind of formal organized Russian opposition. Um, most of the people who would become the nodes of that, have either been imprisoned, forced out of the country or broken. However, we're also getting all kinds of reports about there are continuing expressions of disaffection, ranging for the full spectrum from arson attacks on military draft offices, particularly connected to the mobilization campaign, which is perhaps more extreme, 
all the way through to actually continuing protests on economic issues, usually relatively small wildcat. I mean, they're not working through the trade union movement because the trade union movement is still almost a Soviet style transmission belt from above rather than, uh, again, mobilizing from below. Um, you know, and, and it tends to be, again, focused on very, very small local issues. But, but the point is, it's happening, despite the fact that this is a, you know, this is a particularly repressive moment. Most of us are not heroes. I mean, I'm, I'm still phenomenally impressed by the tens of thousands of people who protested at the beginning of the war, even though basically they knew that they faced, if they were lucky, arrest and a fine or maybe a short prison sentence, if they are unlucky, a good solid beating in, in a cell in, in the police station. Um, but that's a relatively, you know, but again, in a way, people were doing that even though they knew it was futile. Most people, precisely, if you think it's futile, you're not going to put yourself and your family in harm's way. Most people are not heroes. So long as Putin seems to have the control of the state apparatus and the coercive forces are willing to do their miserable job, they will do so. But nonetheless, people are still banding together. People are still putting out leaflets. They're still complaining on social media. They're still sort of mobilizing on very, very small scale, very careful issues. What this says to me is that even at a real height of repression, I mean, you know, at the moment, frankly, this is the most repressive we have seen Russia since really 1980s. I mean, 1980. Um, Isn't it worse, though? Isn't it worse than late stage uh, Soviet Union in some ways? In some ways, it's worse. In some ways, it's better. I mean, once we start to get into kind of the granularities of repressions. Um, but the point is, you know, again, it, this is this is a very, very striking um, period. And, and the very fact that people are still willing to, well, strike um, as well as, as, as protest says something, I think, about the degree to which people have internalized this notion that they have a right to a say in their lives in the way they're managed and in their country. And, and so I, I think the reason, one of the reasons why this repression is so powerful at the moment is precisely because there is a keen awareness that there is a considerable protest potential there. And it's probably only gonna get worse as the economic situation for most people gets worse. And therefore the organs of repression are trying to keep it fragmented. Um, you, know, you sometimes hear banded around the fear of the Polish scenario after what happened with the Solidarity Trade Union in, in Poland that led to the Declaration of Martial Law. That you know, no one would have thought necessarily that a strike in Gdansk shipyards would have suddenly become the catalyst that brings together a whole society-wide dissatisfaction. I think mean, that's what they're worried about, that who is gonna be the next Lekvoenza? You know, what's gonna be the next Solidarity Trade Union that could possibly just out of nowhere start to bring these things together? So I think it's it's an interesting situation because at the moment it's under control, but there is a sense that it could quickly go otherwise. And Navalny, to an extent, before the current period, was fulfilling that sort of paranoia of, uh, you know, they would have seen it as a colour revolution, but actually it's a, a well-structured, extremely sophisticated uh, media and political organisation and campaigning organisation but what you've got now is Navalny has gone from being, I would say, uh, a very capable opposition architect uh, to a martyr, prisoner, hero label. Perhaps Russia doesn't need that. It doesn't need martyrs. 
it's perhaps the wrong strategy for the, the three figures you mentioned to be languishing in jail when maybe if they hadn't done that, they could be building their campaigning structure. They, uh, you know, rather than being hostages of the regime, they could actually be taking actionable steps throughout the country, whether it's silent protests, strikes, um, or even something a little harsher. They, they could have been building a genuine party-based opposition movement outside of Russia's borders. Uh, yeah, this, I think this, this is the problem outside of Russia's borders. What we've actually seen is there's been a succession of, of oppositionist figures outside Russia's borders who have constantly failed to get any traction inside. You know, I mean, okay, it's a very particular sort of special case for Khodorkovsky, a sort of you know, billionaire turned, um, you know, liberal campaigner. Um, but but there there are there are many others, and and I think this is it. I think certainly Navalny, when he went back, I mean it was an extraordinary act, not just of bravery but of patriotism. I, I think he probably knew that he was going to be arrested. I don't think he knew exactly what the outcome was going to, would, would be, but there was that sense that I mean plus he was angry, um, but there was that sense that precisely he didn't want to become another one of those Russian ex, expat politicians who from a nice comfortable berth in a DC-based think tank, inveigh upon the Russians that they should be rising up against this regime. He wanted to make sure, make it very clear that he was putting all his skin in the game. Whether he will end up becoming Russia's Nelson Mandela, whether he will end up becoming irrelevant, whether he will end up, um, if someone decides actually he's too dangerous and whatever, or simply irrelevant enough that he can be eliminated, that he slips on a bar of soap in the prison shower and, and, and breaks his neck. Who knows? Um, you know, it, it's his gamble. But I think the prospects of him being able to make a, a major difference outside the country, I think, would have been pretty limited. And, and of course, he'll be very aware, I think, as many Russians have studied that period where the white forces during the Civil War on paper, uh, you know, had a reasonable chance with the intervention of Western nations. Um, and yet the Russian, uh, the, the the communist regime proved to be far better at uh, subversion, information warfare, and also penetrating, you know, the various, uh, you know, white groupings uh, scattered throughout Europe and in other territories, and, and, and basically destroying their credibility through infiltrating them. So that sort of paranoia, as you say, of operating outside the country, not knowing who amongst your comrades uh, is, is actually, you know, a GRU agent. And this has reared its head as well hasn't it with the case of Leonid Volkov who has been um uh you know what should I say campaigning uh in the interests of oligarchs and has to an extent put a bit of a taint on Navalny's team temporarily and certainly a big stay on his own reputation it's you know Putin as that arch manipulator uh must feel relatively confident that he can infiltrate and degrade um any organization that gets too powerful Yes, so the interesting thing is actually how effective now the Russians are. I mean, there's been such a sort of huge spate of expulsions of Russian agents all across the West, and indeed beyond, but particularly in the West, that that absolutely has put a significant crimp into the capacity of the Russians to, to sort of carry out the kind of operations that, that they did. They're obviously having to rely more on people under so-called non-official cover, 
who don't have the joys of diplomatic immunity. And therefore, if they're caught, they can actually be put in prison. But also, you know, it's much harder to travel to and from Russia these days. It's very difficult to move money to and from Russia these days. I mean, for all these reasons, actually, I think we are, we are seeing quite a quite a blow being struck against the capacities of the Russian intelligence services to operate. So instead, yes, they're having to rely on uh, the remote capacities of disinformation and the like. This has not proven anywhere near the kind of world winning weapon that some people have suggested. But above all, all it can do is exacerbate existing tendencies. It can, for want of a better word, radicalize. It can't change people's minds. You can't take someone who you know, today is a firm supporter of Ukraine's struggle for its freedom and turn them in a week's time into a Z head. What you can do is take people who, let's say, have concerns about the amount of money that is being spent on Ukraine and convince them that this is important enough that they should write to their MP or go and join a protest somewhere. So, you know, they have, you know, we, we have to recognize that the Russians absolutely still have capabilities, particularly because this is an essentially um, not just morally bankrupt, but also post-ideological state. So they can work with the left, with the right, with Black Lives Matter, with white supremacists, you know, whoever they think is useful, they can find some way of building common ground with. I mean, I always find it fascinating the degree to which there are figures within the British and European left who still somehow feel a sort of a, a sentimental support for Russia, in part because it's not America, and as we all know, America is the great Satan, but also because they somehow conflate today's Russia with the Soviet Union, even though today's Russia is to a large extent a kind of neocon, um, you know, extreme economic liberal playground in which absolutely, as we mentioned, you know, trade unions have no real power. Individuals do, you know, do not really have a, anywhere near the sort of the rights of organization and, and, and support as, as in the West. But that doesn't matter. People don't necessarily look at the facts. They have these kind of sentimental attachments. So there's all kinds of things that the Russians can play, but they are, I think, Certainly at the moment, it'll take them some time to try and find ways of rebuilding their, their networks. Actually, very, very limited in what they can do on the ground in the West at the moment. The last two areas I want to sort of focus on, one, the last one is going to be sort of future Russia and, and how, you know, what's going to emerge from this. But before uh, sort of we get to, to, to that one, um, uh, it, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, what's been happening and I think of it as laboratories of tyranny and neo-Stalinism. So there are areas where Russia has, or Putin has, tried techniques outside of its borders, and then we've seen those sort of techniques, um, not to the full extent, we've seen those techniques then become imported into Russia itself, as, of course, we've seen, you know, the degradation of uh, civil society and rule of law. So we've got Chechnya, South Ossetia, Crimea, Donbass, uh, and now Ukraine itself, you've seen extraordinary uh, perversions of rule of law, and I would say even sort of, you know, humanity, in the torture, disappearances, summary executions, hostage taking, detentions, filtration, ethnic cleansing, falsification of criminal cases, arson, destruction of the rule of law and the judiciary. And of course, a lot of it starts with a takeover of the media. So we see these at their really most extreme extent in territories that are subject to, to Russian aggression. 
how much of this, however, comes back, uh, you know, into the Russian system itself, because we've and, and Belarus, of course, is is a big case there, too. Um, do you see this sort of th these extremes ramping up, you know, more significantly within Russia itself as, you know, I, I wouldn't say they've been shown to work outside it, but certainly Putin has got away with these behaviours. Yes, I mean, I think that there's nothing intrinsically even from the Kremlin's point of view, worthwhile about torture for the sake of torture. It is rather the situation they find themselves in and the toolbox that they have at their disposal and that they're willing to turn to. And in many ways, I think actually the way of thinking about this is precisely that it, it's, it's a mark of desperation. If one thinks of Ukraine, for example, you know, Putin had convinced himself and no one was willing to actually challenge that conviction that this non-country and this non-people would basically be willing, I wouldn't say necessarily to welcome Russia in the, in the main, but would, would be comfortable enough accepting, you know, the basic, it, it would be this case that they would roll in, they would kick out or arrest or kill Zelensky, they would install a puppet government, and that, yes, there will be some military units that had to be wiped out, that there will be protests, after all, we must remember, a large proportion of the initial invading force was National Guard, in other words, paramilitary security police rather than soldiers. That was clearly reflecting what they thought that the challenge would be. Of course, it was a great plan, except for the minor detail, it was entirely wrong. Um, and, you know, we see the very level of brutality. I think it is a reflection of that, of the degree of, of panic and desperation that we're seeing ranging from the level of ordinary soldiers. I was talking to um, a little while back, a, a British um, doctor who had worked a lot on precisely through extreme conditions. And he was saying that the thing that actually there's a biggest correlation between chances of, of abuses and sleep deprivation, keep someone awake three days and basically they are operating almost as if they're automatically sociopaths. Now, again, I mean, it's not in any way to excuse anyone, whatever, but you know, I, I think that just as we see on the level of individual soldiers, a level of um, hostility and violence that probably they are horrified by, and that their officers are not in any way trying to control, all the way up to the Kremlin being willing to, for example, sanction a campaign or the deliberate striking, not just of, of Ukrainian infrastructure, but of you know, civilian targets and such, right, which is clearly a war crime. Um, so but I, I said, I, I think it's, it, it is not that they are just simply have gone rabid. I think it's that, that basically these are ruthless people who will use whatever technique is necessary. In Chechnya, they, they leveled Grozny because they thought that was the best way of dealing with the resistance from Chechens, the same way as they leveled Aleppo in Syria. It's just simply, you don't have a problem with doing this if you think this is the most rational route. So in terms of bringing back into Russia, I mean, I don't think that people will say, aha, well, you know, torturing and raping people works. So great, let's start doing that at home. But it's more that I think we have seen the lack of self-control in other terms. Um, that there are, you know, this is clearly a Kremlin which is willing to go to whatever extremes are necessary. And it is likewise also going to, in due course, I think, in my opinion, face challenges at home. And so, you know, it, we have to appreciate, understand, um, 
that you know it, it may well use some exceedingly brutal, brutal tactics. I, I, you know, we're not talking Stalinism. I think it doesn't have either the stomach or the, or the capacity to start killing people by their tens of thousands and, and, and such like. But nonetheless, I mean, I think there, there are still unfortunately unplumbed depths to which we can expect the Kremlin to go when it gets more scared, when it feels that it has no alternative. And we saw that in Belarus, didn't we? We, uh, you know, yes, they arrested many thousands, many were tortured and murdered, but it wasn't, as you say, a complete Stalinist rampage. You know, they weren't locking literally everybody up, but they were selectively taking examples. And I think there was some methodology behind it. You know, they would take people who were perhaps influential in a particular group and they would take that individual and make an example of them in order to to silence the rest of that sort of group or community. Um, so we could see what do you call it, sort of selective brutality uh, there. All of this to me builds a picture up of how do you go from Russia behaving like it does now, and even if you have a change at the top, um, you're still talking about a top-down society. And even if that next leader of Russia is more liberal and more rational, that does not stop the system sliding back into what we've seen now. It seems to me that a much more systematic change is required, rebuilding Russia from the ground up, because it's key institutions, education, religion, um, media, etc. So many spheres of society have been absolutely coerced and poisoned to an extent, in that there's a there's 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 a lack of uh, you know morally guided people uh, who are looking to the future in almost every sphere uh, of society. To an extent, Ukraine I think has shown that you can only rebuild that from the ground up, and you can only do it under a weak state where the the state does not interfere in everything you do. It does not plant agents in every society and does not try to control the message. To some extent, you need a little bit of chaos, uh, managed chaos to, to rebuild society like that. But the idea of chaos is not just an anathema to Russia's rulers. Um, Russia's people we know are not like Ukrainians. They don't embrace chaos and confrontation and, uh, and pig-headedness, which seems to be an extraordinary effective tactic of Ukrainian character. Russians abhor a vacuum and they abhor chaos and they'll almost embrace any kind of tyranny, it seems to me, to avoid that scenario of uh, chaos that, that forces them to think and act and and and, and work as uh, you know small units of people without being told what to do. So that sounds quite crude, I know, but that's that's a sort of um, many Ukrainians sort of see Russia as being that kind of entity. Yeah, I mean, look, I think this, there is a first of all a danger in putting Ukrainians too too high up on a pedestal. I mean, putting aside these sort of phenomenal and extraordinary and inventive as, as well as determined resistance to the Russians, you know, before February, one one could look at Ukraine as a, a state with you know massive problems of co corruption and you know, general state incapacity. Um, it's a sort of classic example of how humor doesn't really sort of often translate. When I, I once suggested that actually Ukrainians ought to put statues of Vladimir Putin in their main squares because he is in some ways the father of the true Ukrainian nation. It has been this crucible of war that has truly brought Ukrainians together and I think will um, have an impact far longer than the, 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 than the conflict itself. I mean, I think you're right in the sense of a certain abhorrence of, of, of chaos or whatever. Um, 
And in some ways, I mean, you know, Russians, I don't think it's so much necessarily encoded in their DNA, but actually for a lot of Russians, it was actually in, in relatively recent experience. The 1990s was a, a terrible time for 99.9 whatever percent of Russians when that small fraction were becoming vastly rich, essentially by stealing all the assets of the old Soviet state. I mean, I am still obscurely and unfashionably optimistic about Russia in the long term. And in some ways, I think actually the Ukrainian war is not only the making of the Ukrainian nation, it could actually also be the necessary making of a, a genuinely new Russia. Because in some ways, Russia never really broke away from its Soviet past. Sure, it, it, it privatized, it turned to the market and, 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 and it was a sort of democracy. But it never really had to deal with its Soviet past. It was able to basically say, well, I don't know, that was the Soviets. And there was a complex relationship. The Soviet Union was not a Russian empire. And it also was. Um, and I think that ambiguity was never dealt with. So first of all, there is a hope, a possibility that the Ukrainian war will actually force the Russians to come to terms with the fact that they are no longer an imperial people. Um, the same way as in some ways the Suez crisis did for Britain and Algeria did for France. And it starts a process. It doesn't just suddenly mean that they sort of think, oh, gosh, yes, you're right. Let, you know, let every nation have their own destiny and so forth. But nonetheless, I mean, I think it, it might well be that the catalyst needed to get the Russians to begin to, to reassess their place in the world and realize that they do not have some kind of special claim over the sovereignty of Ukraine and Belarus and Georgia and you know, as the other neighbors that they, they have and uh, often continue to look down on and believe is theirs. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, look, I think in some ways this is definitely the sort of a toxic last gasp of Homo Sovieticus. And if you look at the people around Putin, as well as Putin himself, they're pretty much all in the 68 to 74 years age bracket. The overwhelming majority were KGB veterans. And also, Almost all of them were not from established nomenclatura party elite families. They were the first in their family to finally make it into the big leagues. So they were the ones who suddenly thought, wow, we've got it made, when suddenly the, the, the system collapses and there is that sense of almost who stole it from us, entitlement uh, that, 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 that has been broken. Um, and, and so there is a real emotional dimension to this. I mean, they really, they genuinely feel that the Ukrainians have betrayed them. They genuinely actually show sort of hatred and resentment toward the West. I mean, I think this is something we often don't understand, the emotional co component of geopolitics. We tend to look at sort of realism versus other models and such like. Well, actually, you know, when, particularly with authoritarian regimes, it's often just basically a small bunch of people and the things that bug them and the th things that matter to them. I really don't get the same sense from the kind of the next political generation that's waiting in the wings, the 50-somethings and the early 60-somethings. These are not nice people. These are kleptocrats, opportunists, but nonetheless, these are also people who, you know, steal for the joy of the quality of life. They want to be able to then holiday somewhere other than Sochi. They want to be able to enjoy the opportunities to keep their money in Western banks safely uh, and all that kind of thing. And so they have a practical reason for wanting to rebuild relationship with, with the West. But more to the point, we tend to find that kleptocracies actually begin to create the basis for rule of law, again, for their own practical reasons. Russia is on the cusp of one of the greatest intergenerational transfers of wealth the world has ever seen, as the, the generation that stole in the 1990s is now beginning to think about succession. 
Now, the problem with the 1990s, and I want a bit of a soapbox here, but bear with me, is what it really demonstrated is you can have rule of law without democracy. You cannot have democracy without rule of law. That was Russia's mistake then. They tried to bring in democracy without rule of law, and of course it didn't work. Well, if, if the kleptocrats can bring in, you know, for their own selfish reasons, want to, to create more rule of law, that lays the foundations for the generation after, who can maybe begin to become the true reforming democratic generation of Russia. Nothing is guaranteed. It can all be, be detoured in every way. The Chinese can invade next Wednesday or whatever. But the point is, I think one has to think of Russia's trajectory in those multi-generational terms. Look, you know, as, as you mentioned in the intro, I mean, by training, I'm a historian. Um, you know, often actually one, one looks at, if you, if you look in this sort of narrow focus, you see all kinds of um, peaks and troughs. You actually have to pull out the aperture to begin to see the bigger trends. I mean, I think, look, Russians regard themselves as Europeans. Russians increasingly, as I said, I think, do believe that they have a stake in their nation in a way that Russians never had in the past. They didn't have as, as peasants under the Tsar. They didn't have as citizens under the Soviet leadership. You know, it's, it's very hard to, to lose that belief once you've acquired it. Um, you know, we see this, that there is still dormant a whole kind of network of people who want to act. And even within many of the institutions, I mean, education, I mean, there's a lot of people who are having to say a lot of real nonsense at the moment because that's required of them. I mean, I just know from my own experience and the people I can still talk to and you know, other sources as well, that you know, a lot of people, they're doing it because they have to. They're gritting their teeth, just as they did in Soviet times. And we shouldn't forget just how quickly what looked like a one-party state in which everyone wore their little red cravats and went out on Subotnik and everything else and did all the things that a good communist would do would then go back and around the kitchen table, you know, ream out their Soviet leaders and the, the inanities of Marxism-Leninism. And as soon as they had the chance, they were happy to sort of see, see that disposed. We shouldn't assume that that's not still the case today. So I think there is room for optimism, but unfortunately it's not quick optimism. It's a, it's a long trajectory rather than anything else. And of course, we focus on rabid individuals, and there will always be some rabid individuals, as there were in the 90s, you know, harking back to a sort of uh, red-brown fascist mm -hmm. Soviet sort of vision. You could always find them on sort of Red Square or whatever. Um, I even got chased by a group of them one time, inadvisedly <laughs> shouting at them. Um, but they could turn out to be the same. That sort of Z patriot, Z generation could turn out to be a sort of toxic minority as you say that gets it dropped relatively quickly but it still i think requires some kind of systematic change whether it be a very loose form of federalism whether it be more autonomy for the regions because russia will still have this imperial idea embedded very deeply even amongst the liberal set even if it's just a concept of look how big russia is um and that you compare it to, to muscovy of the sort of 17th 18th century it's still a vast land empire it still encompasses many many dozens of nationalities who've uh, unfortunately you know had their identities and culture expunged at this point i mean i think there's much left uh in order to build up from the ground up so that that's a sort of another Western projection, hoping that we'll have these nationalities rise up. I mean, that that almost certainly isn't going to happen. But well, especially for... because most of them in the in their constituent republics, they're a minority. Yes. You know, if you go to I don't know Buryatia, well, 
it's mainly Russians. They're not yeah. going to say, yes, let's all start learning, learning Buryat. But can I just very quickly pick up on, I mean, you're absolutely right about the changes. It's interesting that, I mean, for example, with the shift to a parliamentary rather than presidential system, it's something that, for example, Mikhail Khodorkovsky is very much sort of pushing. It's increasingly also cropping up in Russian, in Russia, liberal uh, conversation. Again, an awareness that actually that's one of the problems, that rather than putting your faith in a better president and hoping that works out, that you need an institutional structure. So I think, again, there is a certain awareness of that. And secondly, in terms of federalism, one of the interesting byproducts, I think, of the, the fact that Putin is, is patently not doing his job in terms of domestic management of the elite and the increasing pressures and increasing unrealistic pressures coming from Moscow is that you are getting a kind of corrupt federalism by the back door. That local governments, increasingly, they're seeing Moscow not as a solution, but as a problem. And therefore, they're trying to find ways of sidelining it. We're getting more uh, horizontal connections between regions. Um, but also, I suspect that there is a lot more of basically just kind of placating Moscow, saying, yeah, 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 we're, we're, we're doing that while actually cabals of local leaders sort of essentially run things much more themselves. This is what we saw in late Soviet times, after all. That, so, I mean, I don't think, yeah, I, this idea of decolonizing Russia, I think is nonsense. We're not going to see sort of the, the Republic of Sakha being declared. But in practice, already there is a certain amount of power currently being wrenched from the center because the center is not living up to its part of the social contract with the regions. So clearly at the end of this war, it's a question of whether Russia can rebound in, in, in years or decades or, or in the worst case scenario, you know, centuries or whether it will never recover. Um, just to leave with one final question, because I know we're, we're, we're approaching the end of the time. If we take the sort of three probabilities, and I know historians will absolutely hate a question like this. Um, <laughs> if you take the red outcome, which is the sort of centrists, Soviet authoritarian sort of system that to the war economy that we've currently got, what's the chance of that continuing? Or the white, which will be a sort of, uh, you know, orthodox, ultra-nationalist, Z-patriot sort of white fascism, or the blue, which could be a loosely structured, weaker central Russian state, but with emerging civil society. What are the probabilities of those three outcomes moving forward? I mean, it all depends on the time frame, to be honest. I mean, the interesting thing is, in some ways, I, I, I have a suspicion that, you know, for the duration of the war, we'll be seeing much more of the red structure, which is, yes, all the trappings of Z Patriot, you know, church and soil and everything else. Um, but in practice, a very sort of centralised, controlled, um, you know, managerial political structure. In the immediate aftermath, we probably will see quite a lot of, again, the sort of recrimination. I mean, depending on how successful the Russians are, I just don't think they're going to be particularly successful. But, you know, so we, if we assume the likelihood, at best, they might hold on to Crimea. Um, you know, however much that spin, the, nonetheless, there will be all of these passions which have been generated by the state to mobilize for war, but now have to go somewhere. And if the state can't credibly control them, there will unfortunately be others who will emerge to basically you know, harvest that, that. But this doesn't really offer anything to anyone. I mean, except for the sort of momentary sugar hit of feeling, well, we may have lost, but God was on our side and righteousness and such like. 
Um, and I, I, I do think that in, over time it will give way to a, a more sort of positive um, image of Russia. But as I say, unfortunately, this is something that's going to have to be worked through. Um, and and this is one of the areas in which actually the West will will have some some role. I mean, I think we we dramatically mishandled policy towards Russia in the 1990s with a kind of combination of um, negligent neglect when we needed to be engaged and um, sort of hectoring and patronizing policy when we should have just let the Russian, you know, in areas where we should have let the Russians be. But this time, I think we have to square that circle of showing that we are opposed to many of the things that the Russian state has done, but not the Russian people. But also that we are willing to offer a kind of a fast track back into the human race, but that this will be a path that Russia has to demonstrate that it wants to step on and it will have to sort of show, for want of a better word, worth. Um, so, I mean, I think in a way this will be a case for tough love, whereas in the past we have practiced kind of benign neglect. I sincerely hope that policymakers, politicians will will listen to this because I don't get a sense of, of that sort of active thinking taking place at the moment. But I hope that, that figures like yourself and other thinkers will will, you know, force us to be far more active. Uh, I wouldn't say interventionist particularly, but far more active in helping support Russia's evolution towards a civilized state that benefits its own people. Uh, rather than a fairness, there are there are people I have encountered people within US, UK and other governments who are thinking these thoughts. It's just that clearly at the moment, you know, no, no one's really going to be spending much bandwidth on a. I mean, I think they should, but I understand why they're not really thinking about post-war. They're thinking about what we need to do during the war. I just hope that I mean, at the moment, it's fair enough, because we're nowhere near anything that even looks like a sort of an end game. My hope is that when that does begin to come over the horizon, then people can segue into it. Because otherwise, what tends to happen is we let the war end and then it's. So what do we do now? Yeah. A rock scenario, basically. You've created a vacuum and uh, you haven't mm. filled it with anything that's going to work. Yeah. Right. Well, Mark, it's been a, a, an enormous pleasure speaking to you. I know the audience are going to absolutely you know get to grips with this conversation and enjoy it very much uh and there'll be lots of follow-up questions in the comments but i want to say a huge thank you to for you to spend so much time talking to us this morning hugely enlightening uh and uh, and very thought-provoking thank you so much my pleasure my pleasure and likewise i mean excellent questions are always necessary to try and get me to th start thinking of something new to say <laughs>